Hello out there, and welcome to this, the inaugural episode of Technologic, a tech podcast that aims to inform with insight and to do so in a way that is applicable to everyone. You don't have to be tech savvy to enjoy our content, but if you do know your stuff, we hope you come away from this learning something too. I'm your host, Ted Gritsonis, also known as Teddy K, at least by those who know me. And for this episode, I'd like to talk about something that's been on my mind for a long while now. You know how when a decade ends, there's usually a lot of reminiscing about things that were the biggest or most important over that 10-year span? This occurred to me soon after the calendar took us from 2019 to 2020. Of course, we all know what happened after that, but even in a pandemic, you sometimes see evidence to provoke or support what you think may have been a standout. I'm talking about the smartphone camera. In my mind, it was the most impactful piece of technology of the last decade. Why? Well, because it drove so much of what we do today. Anytime I brought this up in conversation, social media inevitably comes up as the presumed logical choice for such a distinction. But I would argue that's putting the cart before the horse. Because if you take out the images people shoot on their phones, you get a very different form of social media. Anyone remember Twitter before phone cameras really took off? Or that Facebook was initially filled with photos users were shooting on their digital cameras? The smartphone camera effectively decimated a number of categories or put them out of business entirely. Point-and-shoot digital cameras have never recovered. Back in the 2000s, like circa 2007, thereabouts, you had pocket video cams, portable video players, and voice recorders. All gone within a few years. And ever since, phone cameras took leaps and bounds to the point where some can take truly stunning photos and video. I would know because I'm testing all of them all the time. You know you've made it, when Apple shoots some of its commercials with the iPhone, albeit with a million-dollar crew and post-production studio to polish it up, but nevertheless, you get the point. I could really tackle this in any number of ways, but for this episode, I wanted to dig a little deeper to the impact the images people take have in the grander scheme. I imagine previous generations could never have imagined humanity would be able to literally record or capture almost any moment in time on a whim all from a device they could easily slip into their pocket. It's this democratization of imagery that I've always found fascinating, not just as a journalist, but also as a photographer and amateur historian. I mean, I love history personally, and I studied it intensely in my spare time. It's that passion that truly made me realize how much more we've actually seen compared to our ancestors. And we don't have to go back very far. For historical context, you almost literally had to be in the right place at the right time to capture a piece of history that could have massive ramifications. And while I am talking about hidden video, I'm especially referring to home video. For example, we saw unbelievable scenes from the Tiananmen Square protests and subsequent massacre in Beijing in June of 1989. Had it not been for a Romanian soldier fumbling a video camera on December 25th, 1989, we would have seen clear footage of dictator Nicolae Ceausescu and his wife being executed by a makeshift firing squad. If the LAPD pulls over a black motorist named Rodney King just two blocks further down in the early morning hours of March 3, 1991, George Halliday, a plumber living in the San Fernando Valley, doesn't pull out his new video camera to record nine minutes of footage showing four white police officers beating King mercilessly. Those images shocked the world, and we know the footage was a key piece of evidence in the first subsequent trial that acquitted the cops 
and led to the LA riots. It also ended up being key to convicting them later on. Now, just a brief sidebar here. Halliday had actually put that same Sony camera up for auction for $225,000. I I don't know if he actually ended up selling it. Uh, Sadly, though, he did die at the age of 61 of complications from COVID in September 2021. Rodney King had died in June of 2012 after drowning in his backyard pool. He was 47. The Rodney King beating, two trials and the riots, didn't necessarily occur in a vacuum, but they did show us the power of images captured from those who aren't in the media. Technology, in the hands of the many, could reveal the transgressions of the few. Except, that paradigm hadn't shifted yet. We would see this kind of, I guess you can call it guerrilla footage, coming out of conflicts in Rwanda, Bosnia, Kosovo, and more places in the 1990s. We saw the first plane hit the World Trade Center on 9-11 from a camera French-American filmmakers were using to film a documentary they were working on about a firehouse in lower Manhattan. The fallout wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were heavily covered. We know that. But it was the images that started coming out from the local population that showed us a different angle on the ground. As I was thinking about this topic, I remembered a video clip I saw of a Yazidi clan in northern Iraq stoning a teenage girl to death because she had committed the apparent crime of falling in love with a Sunni Muslim boy. The footage was grainy and pixelated, basically what you would have expected from a cell phone and an internet connection back in 2007, but it was a shocking atrocity on full display. And all it took was for someone there to capture it, in a village no less, before untold millions would bear witness after the fact online. The Iraq War was obviously a highly publicized conflict covered by outlets around the world. Then there was all the amateur content coming up from the local population, as well as contract workers and soldiers that were operating there. To me, though, it was the Arab Spring that really signaled that we were very much in a new era when it came to capturing history, especially with phones. Whether it was the protests in Tahrir Square in Cairo or the uprising in Tunisia, it was the Libyan and Syrian civil wars that truly ushered it all in, in my opinion. We only really knew that it first kicked off in Syria in March of 2011 in a southern town called Dara because locals were filming what was going on there with their phones. We only knew that Muammar Gaddafi and Bashar Assad were lying about the extent of the respective protests they were dealing with because the video we were seeing online showed us a very different picture. Had this been 10 or 20 years prior, it's unlikely any of us see any of that happening. To my mind, the Syrian civil war is perhaps the first conflict largely captured by the cameras people carried in their cell phones. Even those who didn't have a smartphone still took video or still photos with their flip phones. It just didn't matter. They were going to take the images they felt showed the reality on the ground. And man, what a reality it was. As I do like to follow world events, I would go to sites like LiveLeak to see the kind of stuff that few news outlets would ever touch. We're talking like bizarre groups of fighters, gruesome executions, exploding tanks, rebels setting traps for government troops, firefights, recriminations, calls to action, desperate refugees. And the topper of them all, which did get news coverage, was a rebel commander literally cutting open the heart of a dead government soldier, taking a bite out of it, true story, and vowing to do the same to the Syrian president. All of that badness caught on phone cameras 
Gaddafi's final moments in Libya were also captured by a phone camera. Not the gruesome parts, mind you, but the moment he got caught and pleaded for his life. It was horrifying, yet also riveting because it became clear that a ubiquitous device like the one I and you had at that moment in time could literally record anything at any time on a whim. If I bore witness to a crime, I could just as easily record it the way the rebels who caught him did. Soon enough, every protest around the world came with this kind of Johnny-on-the-spot footage from the everyman or woman. Think about any protest, revolution, uprising, you name it, that you can remember going back since 2010 to 2011. When troops have tanks, police have batons, and protesters are armed with devices that can show the world what they're doing, there's a power dynamic there. And I think that's one thing we've taken for granted simply because these are devices that are always with us. I've observed this in a variety of situations, not dangerous ones necessarily, but cue something of interest happening and one of the first things people will do is reach for their phone to record it. Is it for posterity? Curiosity? To score some likes on social media? Probably all of the above, if we're being honest. I mean, it was a 17-year-old's iPhone that recorded the 8 minutes and 46 seconds Derek Chauvin laid his knee down on George Floyd and killed him, sparking outrage and a huge protest movement. Had that happened a block or two further down, I don't know that the outcome is any different. For the simple fact that someone else with a phone probably would have recorded it anyway. Even now, we've seen the power of on-the-ground images coming out of Ukraine during the current Russian invasion. Combat troops on both sides, as well as civilians within view of the fighting and aftermath, have shared incredible images of what's happened over the course of the conflict. Even Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky used a smartphone to record comments and messages to the public. Some of the content coming out of the beleaguered country has not only been horrifying, I mean, just look at some of the stuff that's been posted, but it's also drawn more and more eyeballs to the things that would have been harder to conceptualize in real time, like aerial combat and street-level firefights and the way regular civilians have been coping with the new reality on the ground. We've reached a point where phone cameras are supplementing coverage from news organizations. I'm certainly not suggesting that they're going to replace them outright, but if we're talking, you know, citizen journalism, then we've got a situation where a person can either record what they see without commentary or record what they want people to see to score points, whatever and with whomever they may be. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of misinformation because that's not that's not where I'm going with this. The key is, at least in the context that I'm discussing here, the phone camera has become a seriously powerful tool. And that became fairly evident to me over the course of the last decade. It has the ability to sway, to swoon, to swindle, to swear. That's why I tried prefacing all this by noting that there's a number of angles to look at it. And we will be exploring them in future episodes. For instance, uh, how smartphone photos and video transform social media, or how children have never been photographed, filmed, or shared more than in any other time in history. We'll also be exploring the role big tech has in shaping our perspectives. There's connective tissue with all that, just as there is with what I've been talking about thus far. What has given the phone camera this immense power and by extension the responsibility attached to it with whomever is holding one, is the sheer improvement in quality. You can shoot with most phones in HD or 4K resolution today. Some even do 8K. They're getting better in low-light and night scenarios. 
Internet speeds are getting faster and faster, making it easier to upload content in a fraction of the time. Something could literally happen on the other side of the globe, and assuming the pieces are in place, you could almost be watching it live from that same single phone camera that that person is holding. With better quality comes less ambiguity, now, at least in theory. In practice, things are a lot more complicated. I'll lay down some numbers for you to give you an idea. I was reading a report from Keypoint Intelligence, it's a research firm, and they were estimating that there were 1.43 trillion photos taken in 2020. 1.43 trillion. Assuming you were taking one shot every single second, it would take you over 45,000 years to take that many photos. That's just nuts. Now, here's the best part. 91% of those 1.43 trillion photos were taken with smartphones. Now, the percentage itself isn't all that surprising. But when you factor in the sheer volume, you get the picture. No pun intended, of course. I couldn't find reliable stats as to how many of those were from conflict zones or even how many were selfies, nor could I find a solid number for how many videos people were shooting in a given year. We can surmise, however, that it's going to be high, given how TikTok is just soaring in popularity along with Instagram Reels and other video platforms that are engaging people that way. These clips are also getting crisper year over year, all of which started ramping up as the last decade carried on. Once, Android phone manufacturers like Samsung, LG, Google, OnePlus, and even before them, HTC, Nokia, and Motorola started to figure out how to make better cameras for their phones, the arms race was in full effect. We'll be touching that in a future episode, too. Now, going back to what I was saying before, unlike in 2001, people in Afghanistan were carrying smartphones in 2021. And they documented the chaos that led to the Taliban taking power again after 20 years. If not for smartphones, we would have never seen how protests evolved in Hong Kong, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Iran, Greece, and several other countries. Same with Canada even, more recently, where it could be argued that amateur footage provided context on who was actually taking part. This is why when the Taliban had taken over uh, in 2021, I told friends and family that the Taliban had a problem. When they first took over the country back in 1996, it was a war-torn backwater with no real communication to the outside world. It was highly unlikely anyone living there would record anything they saw. Phones are everywhere now with cameras ready to roll. I felt there was no chance the Taliban would try confiscating them from people, nor would they look to cut off the internet. If anything, they would learn to use those tools to their own benefit because they recognized the power they held. Not unlike how ISIS was doing during the height of its so-called caliphate. Under their puritanical... Now, well, the jury's still out on the Taliban, by the way, but under the ISIS's puritanical rule, it was illegal to even have a phone, lest someone end up filming one of the daily atrocities or phone someone abroad and tell them what was going on. Their official reason was that, hey, we might be tracked, you know, helping opposing forces take us out. So don't do it. Okay, it's plausible, for sure. But the cameras on all those phones with the very digital eyes, a tyrannical group like that would rather keep in the dark. People across the globe have their issues with authority, especially two years into a pandemic, but they've also never faced the same level of scrutiny before. Politicians and police now have eyes on them by way of phone cameras. When a politician says one thing, but verifiable footage from a random citizen shows otherwise, credibility becomes a factor. When police say they handled a situation properly, Yet bystanders have ample footage suggesting the story isn't so crystal clear. 
trust becomes a factor. This largely gathered steam in the previous decade, and the power of the phone camera continues to grow. Someone can record you doing something questionable, yet not know the context because they don't bother to ask. That's what journalists are supposed to do, as, of course, their safety may be at stake. It brings me to that famous line from the Spider-Man mythos where Uncle Ben tells Peter Parker, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. That's a quote that I remember well being a Spider-Man fan and collecting comics for years uh, in, my, in the past. And when I think about it in this context, I mean, the more ubiquitous a piece of technology becomes, I would argue the more complacent we get. And we just take it for granted whether it hurts ourselves or others. It's a lesson that Parker had to learn the hard way, too, when his uncle was killed. Do a search, and it won't be hard to find, not necessarily statistics, but content that sort of tells you that the more images you share, the more engagement you're going to be drawing in. And I think that kind of fits with what I've been talking about here, where people were posting some really terrible videos from some of these conflicts in the hopes, again, I I don't know what their specific rationale was for the individuals that were doing it, but they clearly wanted to share something. They wanted to show what was going on for whatever reason, whether maybe they agreed with it, maybe they didn't, maybe they were, it was a call for help. I'm not sure, but that's the power. I mean, images have always been powerful, right? I mean, that's not anything new. The technology makes it different as to how we create it and how we disseminate it, but it doesn't really lessen the power of it in any way. If anything, it enhances it. And we've seen evidence of that, certainly with social media being one of the vehicles. People also text photos to each other or videos to each other all the time. So it's not entirely just social media platforms that are hosting this stuff. People are also backing up their photos on things like Google Photos and sharing them that way. Same with videos as well. So people are creating content with their, you know, with their videos, like with their phone cameras, of course, also. I mean, that's a whole other ball game when we talk about content creation and the way that bloggers and influencers have been using them to build, quote unquote, their own brands. Ultimately, that decade that I've been talking about here solidified the phone camera as the ultimate storytelling device that everybody has access to, or seemingly almost everybody. I mean, it's kind of rare to find someone who doesn't have a smartphone, especially if they're younger than a certain age. And that means that there's some power in everybody's hands. Again, I've mentioned that already, but you get the picture. Again, I mean, I'm full of puns here. That, I think, is what's so interesting about looking at tech from that decade and seeing, you know, and and if you had to pick one, like for me, the phone camera was the most impactful. Yes, there are others that had their impact or are continuing to have an impact now, but the phone camera to me is still the one that just really, really reached far and wide and continues to do so because the growth is just unrelenting. I mean, we're going to be taking, we're going to be passing 2 trillion photos by 2030 easy. It's a staggering amount of content any way you look at it. The question is, is whether it will unite or divide. I mean, at least that's one of the questions. I don't think it's the primary one, but I think it's worth asking whether that might unite or divide people more or if 
we will see a maturity, for lack of a better term, of how people view content coming from phone cameras going forward and see how that evolves. Because even if you look at the last decade to now, we've seen an evolution in the way people are posting photos, the way they edit them, videos too, of course. Part of it is based on how the technology has made them better, uh, certainly. Whereas part of it also is simply because tastes evolve. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to want to compare the content that coming coming from phone cameras to food, but certainly a palette does change, it seems, with tech. And that's one thing I, I would say that I've learned over this time uh, as a journalist covering the tech industry. So I could go on about this topic, and especially with the different angles that apply to the phone camera from the last decade to now... And we are going to touch on those in future episodes, which we really, really look forward to. And so that is our cue to sign off here, or my cue to sign off anyway. But we'd love to hear from you. And you can always reach out to Technologic, whether it's with suggestions, comments, questions, uh, anything you might want to say uh, about a particular topic or a topic you'd like to see us cover. You can always find us on Instagram and Twitter at technologic underscore cast. That's our handle. Or you can email us directly at uh, talk, T-A-L-K, at technologic.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.